0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Two percent, two percent, two percent. The two percent's right over here. Oh, hey, Jenna. I didn't know you shopped here. Uh, yeah,
1: anything to support local food. Know what I mean?
0: I definitely do. Though that's not the only thing you do in the name of Good Eats, obviously.
1: Well, true. I also host Eating Matters every Wednesday at 5 p.m. where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. Be sure to tune in.
0: All right, gotta get the plug in there. I get it.
1: Yep, I'm hashtag shameless.
0: You know what else you can do to support the local food community, right?
1: Well, yeah. Make a donation to Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer
0: food radio station. That's right. And I gotta call you out on the whole local thing. What do you mean? Well, The Farm Report, A Taste of the Past, Japan Eats. Those are shows that take you around the country and the world.
1: I'll give you that. So how can
0: listeners give their support? It's pretty easy. Just go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the big red heart in the top right corner. It's pretty easy from there. Thanks.
1: Today's program is brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com.
0: I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more.
1: listening to Eat Your Words and Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Irway, and it's a beautiful, sunny, sunny day in Brooklyn. Um, I'm joined by a really great veteran uh, food writer, uh, near, uh, sorry, Los Angeles um Times, an LA Magazine restaurant critic. He's also the author of The Last Days of Haute Cuisine, The Coming of Age of American Restaurants. He's won a James Beard Award for writing on food. And uh, he has written for Gourmet, Esquire, Bon Appetit, Salon. And his works have appeared in the Best American Food Writing. his latest book is called "Finding the Flavors We Lost." I'm really pleased to to join um, to be joined by Patrick Q on Heritage Radio. How are you, Patrick?
2: I'm fine. Hello. How are you?
1: Good. Thanks. Um, really great book here. And uh, before we get into the topics that you explore in it, uh, we like to open the the show with a little bit of a trending topic. And it seems that there is just no end to coverage on the dire situation that is America's food waste problem. Um, I noticed that you recently weighed in on this in a in an article. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I mean, just to you know, kind of summarize it. Recent estimates still maintain that we throw away nearly half the food we produce in the U.S., which is detrimental economically, but is also causing environmental harm due to the the methane gases produced with all this food waste. Um, yeah. So yeah, so you took on um, this topic in a in a column about a a nonprofit, I believe, doing. Um,
2: Yes, well, I was yeah. struck, um, you know, my book's about the artisanal food movement right, right. and uh, um, uh, trying to explore what that is. But many of what we consider artisanal foods, of course, were once just basic food preservation techniques. Oh,
0: gosh, um,
2: yeah. Uh, pickling, uh, curing uh, meats, mm-hmm. uh, even making cheese was a way, yep. you know, at its simplest, was a way of, of, of maintaining the, the protein value of milk. Uh, um, Without refrigeration
1: and making it um, delicious but yeah
2: <laughs> so 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 a lot of those was was exactly about uh, preserving food and um, uh, minimizing one's waste mm-hmm. of course today we live in an industrialized scale of of production and that means also an industrialized scale of uh, of growing crops um, I think um, for as far as uh, food Artisans are concerned, it's an important part of what being a food artisan is because um, you know, as I struggled with what an artisan is, which sometimes it's sometimes it sounds ridiculous, sometimes it sounds mm-hmm. incredibly deep and moving. Um, so, I, I sort of entered into the, explore that, but the intentionality of, of, of a real artisan always shines through, yeah. And, um, that's why, um, uh, that's why jam makers, for instance, I've, that I've watched, small-scale jam makers, they're very careful to minimize their waste. That's why any brewery that really is um, <clears throat> engaging, with, <clears throat> engaging with their um, um, broader vision has to be aware of water usage um yeah. uh, you know sort of breweries use an awful lot of water i mean i'm i'm speaking to you from california where mm-hmm. it's a huge point i guess on the east coast is it's not quite as important but every artisan whatever landscape they're operating i think uh i think you make a very good point it's a, it's 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 you, it 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 doesn't have an effect necessarily on the flavor of things, but it has an effect on the intentions behind it, which is really one of the things that make an artisan an artisan.
1: Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, so your book, Finding the Flavors We Lost, is um, subtitled "From Bread to Bourbon: How Artisans Reclaimed American Food," and it's really neat that you, you know, sort of connect those um, that issue of food waste. Because you know, now that I think about it, I might pickle some produce that is about to expire in my fridge but i don't really have the skills to you know take milk that is about to spoil and turn into cheese and all that (laughs) you know all these things that um people are starting to take up again and learn um with this intentionality as you mentioned right yeah
2: well i was very struck by by that added taking on that task Mm -hmm. um in fact you know, I, I work as a restaurant critic in, in Los, for Los Angeles Magazine, so about five years ago, or maybe seven years ago, I started seeing um, chefs making their own butter. Hmm. So I'd go to restaurants and let's say, you know, house-cultured butter. Right. And um, and I, so I was saying to myself, okay, a chef who's already a very busy person has decided to add yet another task to what they're doing or their kitchen is doing, and this is culturing butter. And butter making is so associated with sort of churn, you know, the, the pioneer woman out mm-hmm. on the prairie churning the butter. Yeah. And I said, why is it, chef, in the 21st century, going back to a, a skill, a technique, even a flavor of, of a pioneer woman in, in 1840 in Nebraska? And, um... The the reason, one of the reasons is the flavor. When you taste really good house cultured butter, yeah. um, it, it it has this tang that commercial butter rarely has. Um, and also, it's this idea of, of of the hands are developing their this intelligence, the the, the intelligence of an artisan's hands. Which, yes, it, if it chooses to learn how to make butter, will make butter. Or, or you know, we've all seen that great baker working, and and it's almost like seeing a great musician. How do their hands know, you know, the next thing? How do their hands have this intelligence? Um, and so, I went to 20 states researching this book, and time and time again, I was struck by this this. Uh, it's intellectual but it's also tactile so mm-hmm. uh, a great cheesemaker mm-hmm. can look at a vat of of curd and know exactly when to cut it so that the curd will separate from the whey um, a great baker almost can just look at the proofing dough and know what you know what stage it's at um, a great chocolate maker as they uh, uh, you know when, uh, making chocolate uh, the same it's it, it constantly i was being struck by this um, other intelligence that artisans take on, and the amazing thing about doing it in the United States is artisans have done it without without guilds without apprenticeships without the whole history and lore of Europe you know mm. where it's uh, it's 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 much easier to access the knowledge uh, the early artisans were were you know, they had nothing. There was a couple of books, the, the whole earth catalog, the, the back-to-the-land manuals. Uh, it was the era of the self-addressed stamped envelope. You know, if somebody figured out something, you'd send away your self-addressed stamped envelope, and, you know, a month later, <laughs> the, the information would come back. Um, so I wanted to start it in that sort of uh, from the point of, okay, this tastes good. How am I going to learn how to make it? Right. Uh,
1: yeah. Um, I love how you you sort of open with um, a anecdote about a couple who goes back to the land in a sort of radical way. They're taking on this drastic lifestyle change by living in the country, yeah. and um, uh, beginning to milk their uh, you know their own cow and make cheese. And um, they they learn this through books rather than from say uh, a mother or <laughs> you know <laughs> another neighbor or something. Yes. Um,
2: y- yes. Exactly. Uh, there, there wasn't, there wasn't the network of knowledge that um, that your mother or your grandmother had had, had taught you. Right. I mean, these were people who had, um, who were rejecting the urban environment. Were rejecting the values of commercialization. Were had found. I mean, the the, the people you mentioned, Alice Birchenoff and her husband, they had found a couple of of acres on the eastern shore of Lake Michigan. The soil was completely depleted um, that 's why they could afford to to mm-hmm. buy it um, and they sort of started with okay first of all we 've got to build up the soil. we need a cow to build up the soil mm-hmm. now now the cow is producing all this milk. How are we going to, what what do we, what do we even do with milk yes. you know these were These were people who'd grown up in cities, um, so they had the, they had the rejection part, they could they they'd figured all that out. They just didn't have the how do we live on the land part. And um and yes, they were doing it without a network of knowledge that if they had been, you know, if they'd come from a farming background, maybe their mother or grandmother might have taught them how to make milk. So no, that didn't exist. And um yes a lot of people you know quickly ran back to cities and said, "Ooh, I can't handle it." But <laughs> some people uh, stuck it out and 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 learned how to make cheese which which is you know the very basic a very basic cheese is is mm-hmm. not the most complicated thing to do, but then to make an excellent cheese that's when things get tricky. Right. And and so what really struck me was was a generation driven by the idea of excellence. It's okay. I've, 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 I've separated curd from whey. I've pressed the the resulting sort of fat and protein mass into a ball. Uh, technically, it is cheese. Uh, but as Alice said to me, for a long time, I was making chicken cheese, which means I was just feeding it to the chickens. It wasn't good. And many of us would give up at that stage. But an artisan sort of says okay, I'm not satisfied with this. I want to make it better. I'm going to really find out how to make good cheese. And today, Alice Burchanoff is one of the great uh, farmstead cheesemakers in the United States.
1: Wow, that's just a fascinating uh, uh, profile. And, um, you know, throughout this book, we encounter these folks who are, um, I, yeah, I just never thought of it in that way. They have this determination yeah. through this desire for something better that you can get on this, at the supermarket. Um, but also a rejection, sort of, of the status quo that our food system has come to.
2: Yeah. Um, well, in the, in the, as I researched the book, um, I, you know, I read a lot of sort of the countercultural uh, magazines of the 60s and 70s, and I, I would always read the little ads that, that would uh, be at the back. And um, I remember one ad that you could write away for a bumper sticker, and the bumper sticker said, Beware of the generals. Uh, general Electric, General motors, oh, and General oh, Foods. Wow. So general they food. had put General Foods up there with, you know, among the the huge um multinationals that they distrusted. Right. So there was a real level of distrust and many times the level of distrust um it um it focused on the whole idea of of uh aids that supermarkets uh use and um you know, the pull by date is a whole mysterious thing. That the, the, the they don't actually want you to know good, useful information. It's 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 all written in codes that only people delivering more food can understand. Mm-hmm. And um, it's still like that. And you know, it's very easy to just put a date on something, but. Now it's more so than then, but in the 70s it was totally, it was another language, and only the supermarket and the delivery people understood it. And this, this was you know, among the reasons for total mistrust. Um, mm-hmm. um, uh, it was, it was um, sort of a governmental agency that didn't trust the consumer to have the information. Um so it was the mistrust was based on you know good concrete reasons.
1: Mhm. So yeah. now, now we are you know enjoying the fruits of this determination this hard work towards excellence of of many of these bread makers, cheesemakers, beer makers, uh you name it. Yeah. And um I I just have to ask cuz you know Artisanal gets lumped in a lot with you know fancy and gourmet and that whole ring to it, which is it you know it comes from such a humble beginning. So, right. you know how do we transcend that or or do we? I mean how do we? Um, well, communicate. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah you,
2: you, you're right. It, it it has a connotation of of um, of less and less, but still does, yeah. Yes, it still does have this connotation of slightly fancy, and it is slightly more expensive. Yeah. Um, I think that is an opportunity to discuss sort of the bigger subjects that revolve around artisanal. Um, uh, one of them is scale. Um, at the moment, we're trapped in this kind of language that only small is good. Mm-hmm. So think of breweries, the microbrewery, the right. nanobrewery, uh, small batch, single batch. Every, everything is supposed to be better if it's smaller. Mm-hmm. And. Um, I, I get why that's the case because big food was, was essentially took the flavor away from American food, corporate food. Mm-hmm. But you know, today if the the the, re, the reality of of artisan production is, um, uh, chocolate makers, coffee roasters, you name it, are employing people, offering opportunities. Um, reclaiming yeah. neighborhoods in certain cities i 'm thinking of like Milwaukee, where a industrial uh, a formerly industrialized neighborhood like walker 's Point has become like the center of the city with coffee roasters, chocolate etc um, and but more than anything, they are creating opportunities in the shape of jobs mm-hmm. and that 's a hard thing to do in today 's america and so Uh, It sort of bothers me to see people who are doing something fantastic like growing and offering jobs make uh, their advertising and their whole kind of narrative is, oh, we're tiny, we're tiny, we're tiny, when the reality is they're doing something formidable. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think we have to get away from this idea of only small is good, and that will sort of loosen the whole idea of price, because if if, if they're allowed to make more, The the price will come down. More people will have access to better quality, and you know ultimately uh, the 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 achievements are very real. When I think of of of, uh, the Walker's point, you know it's it's sort of reclaiming an American city. When I think of uh, farmstead cheesemakers that I know throughout the country, they're providing jobs that are much more solid than than seasonal tourist jobs. And you know, my my best example is, is is two women in in Vermont who who after 40 years as farmstead cheesemakers, uh, donated their entire farm, 300 acres, uh, to the Vermont Land Trust, so it will mm. always be agricultural. So yeah. I, I always think, you know, next time you have a. a a, a perfect view of the green mountains uh, of Vermont, because there isn't a housing subdivision there. It's because uh, it was because artisans donated that land to the Vermont Land Trust. You know, the, the, I think that makes the cheese worth the extra twenty-five cents a pound. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh! <laughs> so people have to see the bigger picture of that slightly elevated yes, price. Yes,
1: that cheese. Well, do you think that so by scaling, uh, it doesn't necessarily affect the quality when you go for a larger, you know, batch, bigger facilities? It doesn't take away anything necessarily from that kind of high-touch uh, uh, product, or are you saying that like perhaps the the gains that are to be won through scaling, like. Employing yeah. more jobs and having greater, you know, flexibility and comfort, such that you can do things like donate to, uh, your <laughs> land to the Vermont Land Trust, is is outweighing the kinds. Um,
2: yeah, I, I think ultimately the t- the taste has to be there. Mm-hmm. If you grow and your tr- and, and, um, and your and your and your quality drops, uh, then the loss then the loss is too big to really um, justify it. Okay. Um, but um, But, you know, there's a lot of people, not a lot, I can think of people doing small production and the small production is not any better than large production. Yeah. So So
1: we need to uh, not assume, um, yeah. We
2: can't can't simplify things in the other direction either and say, oh, it's small, therefore it's good. Yes.
1: Right. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So many topics to cover. Um, We're going to cut to a quick little commercial interlude and we'll be right back. Okay.
0: And this is Greenwood Cemetery by Teeth People. We'll be right back. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to kane 5com
1: All right, we're back chatting with Patrick Q, the author of Finding the Flavors We Lost – from bread to bourbon how artisans reclaimed american food um patrick thanks so much for diving into what exactly it means to be an artisan because um i'm curious you know as a food critic you began seeing this word pop up a lot around when exactly was that uh, and you know did you at first think it was sort of like a marketing gimmick and sort of yeah
2: exactly yeah. I, I, it seemed it seemed like oh uh, this is the newest word that the buzzword food, food promotion has churned up like uh, you know fusion uh, right. ten years ago. Okay, and uh, and I've expected it to come and go, but it didn't go. So mm-hmm. yeah, I was, uh, I, I, that's when I decided to sort of go upriver and say, okay, well, what does it mean?
1: Right. So so okay. So it it's not something that you can actually. There's no label. There's no requirements for using this word in your food product. What do you think, in a nutshell, it means, and how do you think that uh, it could be sort of abused (laughs) as a term?
2: (laughs) Oh, the the abuse is easy, you know. um. Uh, uh artisan doritos you know there's there's abuse so the abuse is all around us really? and th- and you're right there is no um sort of governmental mm-hmm. uh, uh, definition um there's only two governmental definitions really one is farmstead cheese which means that the, ch- the cheese is made from the cows on that farm mm-hmm. um, and one is craft beer which uh, the Brewers Association says six million barrels or less a year is what makes a craft brewer, which mm-hmm. sounds like a lot of beer, but actually in terms of commercial beer, is not that That's much. That's not much, yeah. Um, but other than those two definitions, there's very little definition. So, uh, you know, the, the consumer has to sort of uh, uh, figure it out themselves. Uh, I think one of the helpful... Uh, things that I've always looked at is the time involved in making that flavor uh, as, as fantastic as possible. Okay. Because t- Time is really what can be penciled out by anybody who wants to abuse the term. Um, uh, and time is really what uh, allows many of the flavors to develop. Now that may be 24 hours for a, for a naturally leavened loaf. That may be eight yes. months for a Swiss-style cheese. That may be um, four years for uh, for bourbon kept in a rickhouse in, in Kentucky. So the the, the the time isn't specific, but for that particular food or, or drink, there is a certain amount of time that allows the flavor to develop to what it can be. Yeah. And, uh, and an industrialized food system is all about cutting out time. Time it's,
1: is it's, money. Yeah.
2: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the efficiencies of industrialized production cannot abide the idea of just Thing sitting, um, you know, while time um, develops, but sorry, while flavor develops. Mm -hmm. So, I've always tried to figure out is this person putting in the time? Um, and, uh, and really, the, 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 we all know when we taste it that yes, this is, this is, um, the sort of the synthesis of an ingredient that, that has been almost burnished by time. And a great cheese has that, a great vinegar. Um, but, um, so that's that's one of the things, and one of the things in scale, and as we as we were talking earlier mm-hmm. about scale and growing, mm-hmm. um, one of the things is are they are they rushing into growth once they become successful? And my 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 favorite example of of not rushing into it is Tartine Bakery in San Francisco.
0: Yeah, I was um, just thinking you know, of that.
2: They, They had lines, you know, from the first year that they were in operation. They had lines going out the block, waiting for their bread to come out of the oven at five o'clock in the afternoon, and um, and they waited ten years before they increased production from 250 loaves a day, Um, and that means that they wanted to, you know, it sort of goes back to your earlier point, the quality and growth. They wanted to make sure that when they did grow, the chain, the bread didn't change, and so. That's another aspect of time. Not saying, oh, wow. Um, let's take
1: advantage of this. Yeah, yeah
2: now we're successful. You know, mm-hmm. Let's have a public offering and make a killing. Uh-huh. Th- that is such an unartisanal way of thinking that you, know, you should be kicked off the artisanal uh, team right, <laughs> for right. doing it. So, a real artist, not only is the time important and is the flavor developing, but also, okay, now we're successful. Can we maintain our values? And that means just keep things steady until we figure a way to – growth is good. I'm not anti-growth at all, but just growth with the with the same quality.
1: Yes. Uh, I, I think that's a great way to kind of like summarize it because it is a really tricky word to, to kind of translate. But, uh, you know, homemade or something, you know, something that is made uh, – like a craft that is learned, but done with great intentionality. I think that sounds like the recipe for artisanal. Um, So you also write that um, food and art, sorry, artisanal food has always come along with uh, technology uh, through the ages. So, yeah. yeah. So with beer production, you know, we, or actually, no, sorry, it was a, was it distilling? There was a a, one type of sill and then they expanded to a, a better type of sill that could, produce cleaner flavors.
2: Right. I was very struck by the idea of of technology because it's become a sort of uh, the way the argument is sometimes made, artisanal is the opposite of technology. Yes. Mm -hmm. And um, once you start looking at artisanal foods, that really doesn't hold up because what what is technology? It's it's using using a a process to um, to uh, help you produce something uh, maximizing the, the energy that you create with less energy that you put in. So I'm, talking, I'm thinking, for instance, of the lever press. Uh, The lever press that goes back thousands of years Mm. to the Eastern Mediterranean, we wouldn't have olive oil if the lever Uh press hadn't been pressing olive oil. Yeah,
1: how would you do that otherwise?
2: (laughs) You you can't press it by hand. Mm -hmm. If we we go back to colonial America, the cider press, the the two screws on either side that were lowered, um, tightened. we wouldn't have cider and therefore cider vinegar without the the screw press. I mean, this was technology. Um, um, distilling is 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 a very basic technology, making use of the different boiling points of alcohol and water. So that when you bring a an alcoholic. Um, liquid to boil the alcohol will separate first and then you sort mm-hmm. of harvest that alcohol and you and you um, you know there's your alcohol separated from the water um so these are all technology um and so what happened how did technology become an ugly word that nobody <laughs> wants to be associated with well of course it, it was all based on efficiency efficiencies of production efficiencies of scale yeah. and what what happened was technology took over and the efficiency of technology and it started to take away nuances uh... and it was all about maximizing yield and minimizing nuance and um, you know we went down that path And until a (laughs) a generation came along and Mm -hmm. said, "Whoa, you know, let's 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 reclaim some of those flavors um, that we we used to have in American food."
1: Mm -hmm. But it's good to remember that you know the artisan's job is to find the best flavors. So, for instance, you know one technology created, um, you know, it transformed what was sort of a moonshine with skunky, you know, (laughs) not the best flavors. Um, You know, the artisan. figured out a better way to distill and, um, right. you know, if, if we kind of lead by that, um, you know, that, that, pl- that <laughs> that's
2: good, goal that, that's of good quality. That's remember next yeah. time we're enjoying a, a nice bourbon. Right, know? right. There's, there's, there's quite a bit of technology in that. <laughs> yes. Just the right technology. Yes.
1: Yeah. So technology can be used for, you know, to to maximize efficiency and so forth, but also just to improve quality. Exactly. It's, it's a great thing to remember. Um, so uh, I guess what surprised you most while you were diving into all these artisanal uh you know folks and uh makers and this whole journey that you took on to explore this topic? Was there anything that jumped out at you
2: um, yeah. well um I think. Well, one of the, I mean, you, you, you're based in Brooklyn. When I went to Brooklyn, I was I didn't know what to think. You know, one always hears about the artisanal scene in Brooklyn, and it's, uh, I wanted I wanted to really explore it. What I was really struck with in Brooklyn was the the the, the intentionality of the artisans that I was meeting, mm-hmm. um, and the idea of work. This this um, the idea of sort of elevating the work that one is doing. Um, uh, I, I'm thinking of uh, a chocolate uh, place I went to in Red Hook, uh, Cacao Prieto. Yeah. I'm, th- I'm thinking of um, um, well, two, two, two pickle makers. I went to an old pickle maker at the at the at the Brooklyn Terminal Market, the Pickles, mm-hmm. who's been making pickles. Well, his great great-great-grandfather came over from Europe with the pickle recipe. So, he was, you know, yeah. it's really old-school pickle-making. And then I went to uh, to uh, Brooklyn Bryan, a guy who, who, who's been making pickles for a decade. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to sort of compare and contrast. And what was really affecting and inspiring was the um, um, Howie Silverstein at, at Batamta Pickles, the care and love that he puts into his pickles is much the same, you know, I saw it reflected in, in Seamus Jones at Brooklyn Brine, you know, a young guy uh, um, uh, who, who, who just who happened just to make it, great yeah. pickles. So, mm-hmm. You know, for me it was the continuity that I was trying to find um, and that today's artisans are picking up on something that already existed, which I think is what gives the movement its resonance. Um, I found it in Brooklyn, so there's something that surprised me. That's
1: really neat. And, you know, quality is king, and when you can taste that, it's like, you know, who cares how long you've been doing it. <laughs> exactly.
2: Um, that's exactly. awesome.
1: Well, you'll have to come back and uh, see what else is new and uh, happening here.
2: Ex- exactly. I, I, I'd love to. Uh, I know a lot is going on, so I'd love to do that.
1: Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for kind of exploring and, and uh, capturing this revolution, really. Uh, thank um, you so much for having time. me on. Yeah, it's a wonderful book. I hope everyone gets it and reads it on the beach. It's enjoyable, but it's also really deeply thoughtful. So. oh, thank you. Excellent. Thanks so much, Patrick, and thanks everyone at Heritage. Uh, we'll see you next week on Eat Your Words.